Welcome to the Success Leaves Clues podcast with Robin Bailey and Al McDonald. Have you ever wondered what makes someone successful? What are they doing that's different? How do they achieve greatness? We believe that success leaves clues. In this series, we are interviewing very successful people from different walks of life to hear their stories. We'd like to remind our listeners that the views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and not necessarily those shared by our hosts. Welcome back to the Success Leaves Clues podcast. I'm your host, Robin Bailey, back with my co-host and business partner, Al McDonald. Al, how's your day going? Happy Friday. Yes, thank you. Going very well and very excited to be talking to our guest again today, who's a return guest, and it looks like we've got some interesting things to talk about. So very excited. We are traveling all the way down to Austin, Texas today. I'm so excited. Yeehaw! First of all, another thank you, a shout out to Leah Carr for the introduction to someone that we enjoy talking to so much the first time on the podcast that we had to have him back. And Al and I got off this, the original podcast and had a conversation like, wow, that person's on a whole nother level. So we really have enjoyed getting to know our guest and a second time we get to know him better, which is great. So returning to the podcast is Jason Putnam, Chief Revenue Officer at Plum. He is an award-winning sales leader, currently oversees Plum's strategy, driving revenue generation initiatives and expanding into new markets to meet customer demand. Since joining Plum in December 2021, Jason has helped drive substantial growth in the company's pipeline and client base, which under his guidance jumped 20% in six short months. Throughout his career, Jason has repeatedly growing businesses to exit, having held strategic sales positions and business development titles. Welcome back to the show, Jason. So happy to be back. Thanks for the kind words. I don't take compliments well, but I appreciate it. <laughs> well, so good to see you again. And thank you, by the way, for sharing every single episode that we release, a clip on LinkedIn. I noticed that you share every single one of them. So appreciate your support for the podcast. It is much appreciated. Anytime. What you guys put out, I think, is not only high quality, but it's needed and very valuable. So we should be thanking you. Well, I appreciate that. Well, I was very excited to have this conversation because it seems the headlines every time I'm opening up, whether it's a piece of social media or getting my daily newsletter from certain sources that I use, AI, artificial intelligence, is all over the place. And I thought that would be a great spot to start to just talk about AI, how it can impact the world, but maybe how will it impact the world? And if you're sitting here thinking, well, I can just ignore AI and, and it's not going to affect, I don't think that's reality. So perhaps some insights, Jason, around how business leaders can actually use AI to their advantage. Thanks for the question. And I love the show in general because it's not scripted. And I like just having normal conversations that you would have you know, either with a peer, with a spouse, or just sitting around a boardroom, because most people don't know the answers to these questions. So we get to ideate a bit. So my previous company was an AI company, Plum, where I'm at now. As a tech company, we use AI, but on the personality side, we don't. Number one, it's not scientifically based. You have to assess people and you can't use AI. I have a background in AI. I'm not an AI expert, but I'll look at it through the lens of an executive at this. You cannot ignore AI. I do not care what level of position you are, or even kind of what you do in your day-to-day -day life. It's no different than telling somebody decades ago, you could ignore the internet or ignore a general search engine like Google. So I know there's the, we've all 
been scared and it started in 1983 with Terminator. I think I got my year right. Could that be a possibility? Sure, anything could be a possibility. Anything that could be used for good can be used for evil. It's just dependent on who's using it. But the point of generative AI is kind of what everyone's talking about today, is to make people more efficient. And there's a way you can use it in a way to actually make humans more human. That's a much longer conversation. I'd rather focus on the efficiency side. I don't think it's going to replace everyone's job. There are certain aspects of many jobs that AI can automate and it should automate. Just like when I'm looking for information, I go to Google and find it as opposed to having to get in my car, drive 20 minutes, go to a library and come back. The fact that I can find something in two seconds versus two hours has made me incredibly more efficient as a human. And it's going to do it in our workplaces as well. It's already done it in ours. So if you think of it from either writing code or salespeople, it's not going to take the place of a developer, it's going to make a really good developer phenomenal because it's going to make them a lot more efficient. It's going to take a mediocre developer and make them really good. Where you're going to see the gap get pulled apart is people who are using it and people who aren't using it. And if you are a really good developer who's not using it versus a really good developer who is using it, that's where the big gap is going to be. It's just like using any other tool you would be given. I trust there's going to be regulations put in place to keep the robots from taking over the world. But where we are today, we use it every day at our company in really every position. We use it from an admin perspective. Salespeople use it to think about different creative ways to do outreach. So if you think about a really targeted enterprise sales rep, they don't send 100 emails a day. They go look at financial records. They do all this research stuff in the news, and they're going to craft you know, in their mind what's a perfect email to a decision maker. That process to send that one email, if you're a really good enterprise sales rep, is probably two to three hours. With what we've done from an AI perspective, we can probably get it down to 20 minutes. So think about, number one, the efficiency of that human, and then number two, how many more of those they can do with potentially even better outcomes. So it's the quality of what's being put out, but also the volume of which they're being put out. So if you're sitting here today and prior to this conversation, you're thinking, okay, I could ignore AI, and you're listening to someone like yourself speaking, and you realize, well, hold on a second, maybe I do need to embrace this. Where do you even begin? Because I think the term AI, if we're sitting here a few years ago, no one knows what it is, right? Very few, maybe people in the tech space, but it's a new term. I think it intimidates a number of people. Where can someone start to say, okay, let me get the basics of this so I can at least have a conversation over breakfast with someone? AI is a very, very broad term. It's like saying the internet, right? So it's a very broad term. And if you think of certain like age groups, it's like, I'm on the internet, right? Versus where, you know, somebody who's a digital native who grew up with, you know, as a baby where they had a, a smartphone in their hand. So if you, you got to understand what AI means, if you're using Surrey on your phone, you're using a version of AI, right? When you start talking about like generative AI or even cognitive AI, that's very different. Most people aren't going to go from there to there, but start using Surrey on your phone. That's AI. It's just utilizing a large language model to generate things down. It's a choose your own adventure. That's how a lot of like everyday AI works. If this happens, then this will happen. It just does it at speed by which most people can't do. Nobody's going to go from zero to a hundred to say, I want to understand, you know, how this works, the background of chat GPT and how it all works. You don't have to do that. But what like chat GPT has done is it's democratized access to it. So no different than Google did. I can have an instance of chat GPT and just search something and I'm going to get results back. I don't have to have it write content for me. That's one option, but I could just put something in that says, 
there's a bit of a time lag in there based on the data to process that data. It's older, it's a year old. But for an example, I may say, hey, I'm going to be in New York in three weeks. What are the top five restaurants in New York? And I also am gluten-free. I don't like spicy food in this. It's going to give me a list of all those things that's curated for me based on the inputs that I put in. And that's going to make me and my trip to New York incredibly more efficient and more enjoyable. So I would start somewhere there. It's interesting to see where development is happening with respect to chat GPT. With Back to School, there were some articles that had come out about universities are using a software, I forget the name of it, because they're worried about AI generated essays. So now they will be running it through the software that is specifically designed to detect if that essay was actually written by a person or written by chat GPT. So very interesting. I have some interesting like perspective on that and it may be provocative. I don't care. So, I mean, it's like abacuses were cheating, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And then it was, you can't use calculators. Why? And then it's, you can't use your phone. Why? It doesn't matter to me. I mean, the, the majority of people, I, I'm going to butcher the percentage, but it's something like 20, mid twenties percent of people in the workforce today are actually using their college degree that they got. College has become a slight bit of a joke, unless you're a lawyer or a doctor to where it's just getting through proving you can get something done. So as long as there's not perjury involved, right? If somebody is dumb enough to generate an essay that they're going to send to a professor and chat GPT and just send it without reading it or editing it, that's on them and they shouldn't get a college degree and they're probably not going to be great in the workforce, but it's going to make them exponentially more efficient. And what it may allow somebody to do is actually get two majors or three majors or go into something that they didn't think they knew how to do. I have a very different perspective on it because to me, it's all about making humans more efficient. And when you can take the mundane tasks and take them off of a human, ultimately humans can be more human if you do it that way. We can spend more time with other humans if you get rid of the mundane tasks that we have to do every day to survive. I agree with you, Jason, and uh, it's interesting. You kind of, you preempted my question because you already answered it and I was gonna ask you about that. And you said AI is really just a tool. And it's, it's like so many tools that we've seen in the past. You used the example of the abacus, it's exactly right. I hear a lot of parents saying, well, Kids won't know how to write an essay anymore. They don't know how to research. Well, when I grew up, I had to go to the library because the internet wasn't around. So I had to go to the library, literally look through books, come up with a bunch of paragraphs and, you know, highlight them. And, and then the internet came along. Yep. Well, I didn't have to go to the library anymore. Well, now chat GPT comes along. It's another tool. And so I agree with you and I know where you're going with that. And if there's something more efficient, why not just use it? I think, you know, and again, none of us are what I would call young on this call, it's not laziness. It's being more efficient. And I can't think of a better thing than wanting the next generation to be more efficient than the generation that we had. Life is going to be so much easier if they can be more efficient. That's the thing. What's missing in the world today is everyone's so inundated with work and life. Most of it's just meaningless nonsense tasks that you have to do, right? There's a million movies out there. You can go look at iRobot or whatever. Oh, I have a robot clean my house and then they end up killing somebody. Do I ever think we'll be there? Probably not. But how much more time would I have and my wife would have to spend with our family if we had a robot cleaning our house all the time, right? Everyone was fine when it was a vacuum that ran around your house with no intelligence. This is just the next progression of that. To me, I think what's missing kind of in the world is just human interaction. And this, if you do it correctly, we can use it for much more human interaction. I heard an interesting statistic today, and it was so out there that I don't even know if it's true. And I certainly haven't had time to research or anything, but a hundred years ago, the average work week was upwards of 100 hours. I don't even know how that's possible. But to your point, 
there's a bunch of time that you are not spending with your family, interacting with others. You are literally just working. So now the average work week is probably 35 to 40 hours. Again, to your point, think of all the extra time now that you have to spend with your family or with your friends or doing some things that don't just require you to be doing labor. And the other interesting thing about that, and it's a lot of people our age or older than us will look at the next generation, look at it through a lens of they're lazy. It's not that. It's really not that. I just did a big presentation about this at Nike's corporate campus in Portland. And, you know, we can all look at that and say, well, we think they're lazy because we had to do math by hand, right? Well, no, we created tools. The next generation, the generation that's coming out of college now, university now, thinks about work very differently than everyone else has ever thought about work. And there's a couple of reasons why they have. And I'm glad we're just organically talking about this podcast. The biggest reason is, their whole college career, most of it was taken from them with COVID, right? So they feel a little gypped, number one, and they were locked down for two years and in some countries longer than two years. So now they hit the workforce. They've also had this experience of watching their parents not work 100 hours, but in their mind, 40 hours, 50 hours is still 100 hours, right, from a perspective. And because of COVID, the supply chain in talent has been so shifted from a workforce perspective that they have more options than the generation before them had because of the amount of remote work. And our generation, certainly my parents' generation, they found happiness in providing for their family, even though many of them hated their job, right? They got through it. They came home. They didn't talk to the family. They poured their whiskey, but they had a paycheck and that made them happy, even if they hated their job. This generation is vastly different. They want happiness first and the job second. They want to be able to find happiness in their job and they're going to demand it. And companies can hate that all day long. You won't have anybody to hire if that's the case. And the way we talk about this is the high level executives when I grew up and when you all grew up said, okay, what can this person as an applicant, a candidate or an employee do for the company? And what happened overnight with COVID is the humans said, what can this company do for me? And that changed immediately overnight and companies have not caught up. And if they don't catch up and change their perspective and put the humans first, they're done. Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, I've said it myself. I don't understand why people go to work to do something they hate. I'm not gonna sit here and say, hey, my job is the most important thing in my life and I love every moment of it, but I like my job. Mm -hmm. And I really don't understand why people would continue to do a job that they honestly hated. Like that's never made sense to me. So to your point. Yeah, and I think it's the equilibrium of talent. It used to be the companies had all the control and geography was a big part of that. You know, if you wanted to work for Coca-Cola, you had to move to Atlanta, right? Or Scotiabank, you had to move to Toronto or whatever. But for most jobs, right, or most professional jobs, you can work from anywhere. So now you have the ability to change that. I've told this on a couple of podcasts, I'll say it here, is people who have been doing it for a long time don't understand what has actually changed. And getting rid of geography as a gating factor for talent has changed everything. And again, those of you who've heard me do this, I'm going to tell the same story again, I apologize, but in the 1500s, if I was the only bachelor in the village and there was another bachelorette in the village, we got married. It didn't matter what we looked like, if we liked each other, if we had all our teeth, we got married. It's the way it worked. Then horse and buggies came along, right? He or she had more options. Fast forward today, I can theoretically date anyone anywhere, right? If I'm willing to put the time in, invest and do long-term relationships. The exact same thing happened overnight post-pandemic. You can work from anywhere with almost any company. And the companies are so used to just having that geographic control, they lost it. They don't know what to do about it. And they need to embrace it. Stop making people come back to work. 
Stop making people come back to work. It's the same thing as the AI argument. I used to commute an hour each way. I have two hours every day now. I can choose to use that to be more efficient at work or spend time with my family or at the gym or whatever my hobbies may be. Those are going to round me better as a human and actually make me a significantly better employee as well. So we're talking about keeping employees happy, providing an environment where they're going to be their best selves. They're going to be the most productive. Do you have some tips for employers, Al and myself included, around becoming that employer of choice and making sure that the people that are showing up are actually enjoying and, and to Al's point, I've said it before too, I love what I do, but there's parts of my job that I don't enjoy. What are those things that people like Al and myself or other companies out there that can do to say, hey, here's a great place to be and here's why? You're certainly thinking about it the right way, right? It's again, what can the company do for me, not the other way around? Well, the title of the podcast, right, really talks about this. So what do I feel the biggest factor is in success from a corporation perspective? It's people. And I know that's very, you know, a lot of people say that, but when people are able to and allowed to flourish both at work and at home, the business that they're at will thrive, period. It's proven. We had an interesting thing happen with us that there's an award out there that's inspiring workplaces. And we were voted that of all North America, and that's every company, right? Whether it's a sole proprietorship all the way up to Coca-Cola. Plum was voted 37th best place in North America to work and 68th globally, along names with like Kroger, Verizon, Gartner, really, really big companies. And of all the awards we have won, and we've won a lot, like that was the biggest one for me. And it was actually the biggest for our entire leadership team. This year we won for our industry, the best product of the year. This was still a bigger one. And the things that go into that award are culture, leadership, well-being, inclusion, diversity, employee experience, kind of what you talked about, and communication. And I want to talk about communication because I think, again, culturally, I was brought up where you need to be a different person at work than you are at home. And it never made sense to me that aspect of things, right? Well, I get as a leader, you have to have this distance and maybe I need to act different or I need to play this part. We call it imposter syndrome. A lot of women call it that. And it's like what we have built culturally, and I've always tried to build, but had really been able to do at Plum, is just this open communication. And what people want is trust and safety. They want to be able to be themselves at work and that same person who they are at home, right? So if certain things bother you, you want to be able to talk about it. You don't want to be looking around the corner and trying to pretend you're something you're not or play a part. So how do you get there? And to me, it's honesty and vulnerability. And that vulnerability and the honesty has to come from the top. And I have a lot of these conversations with people who roll up to me. It's like, I'm not going to tell you how to do that job. I'll tell you aspects of how to do that job, but I hired you to do that job because I have no idea how to do it, right? Our CEO, who's amazing, as we've grown as a company, we're as big as we've ever been. She had an all hands meetings. Again, this is a female CEO. It's a very successful company who said, hey, we're growing. We just added a whole bunch more people. I've never managed a company this big or this successful. It's going to be a bit of a learning curve for me too. So the fact that she was able to bring those gloves down and be incredibly vulnerable it really leads to everyone else being comfortable with it and having that clear, open and honest communication. And I could go tell somebody to build a 747 in, in my driveway. And in a lot of company cultures, they're just going to go, okay, they have no idea how to do it. And they're never going to come back and say, I don't know how to do it. And a week later, I'm going to say, is it built? And then they're going to go, no. And they're going to make excuses versus when I tell them to do it, they're just going to come to me and go, I don't know how to do it. And then we can have that open and honest communication. And there's so many examples of when it goes right. And I want to tell a story because that's what I do. But the fun examples are when it goes wrong. 
But I'll pause there to see if you guys have any questions or feedback before I hop into a fun historical story. Well, I do have a question to follow up. You hit the nail on the head, I think, when you talked about it's okay to admit that you don't have all the answers, right? And you use the example of your CEO. Hey, this is going to be a learning curve for me too. What happened? Because that was not the way, like even five to 10 years ago, if you were in your role, if you were in the CEO role, if you were the boss, you were just expected to know the answer. So are you asking what happened when she did that or what happened culturally? What happened culturally that now that approach and that attitude is more accepted? I don't think it's more accepted, frankly. I think it should be more accepted. I think there's an interesting things that have happened. Number one, our workplace has changed. So we are now working from our house. A lot of us are working from our house. So those two things had to be melded together. So that's one aspect. We actively and consciously as a company have made those choices. And there are more companies who are actively and consciously making those choices. So I think that's part of it. The influx of female CEOs has been a big part of this. And female leaders has been a huge part of this. And I think a lot of female leaders have always wanted to do this. But from an imposter syndrome, they've always tried to play a different part. And it's come across and not taken very well. People are just people who are trying to get through life and have the right work-life balance and do all that. I think COVID kicked a lot of people's ass and they went, hey, work may not be the most important thing, but it's still important. And when COVID was going on and everyone was working from their bedroom and their significant other was walking by or their baby was jumping up with their dog, it brought humanity into a work environment that, in my opinion, was never there. And when it first started, like people were just figuring it out. People were still wearing shirts and ties on Zoom calls. It was this really different dynamic. I've actually never thought about the cause. It's a great question. I think it's just the, your work was forced to be put in your house. And when you open up your house to a work environment, naturally the humanity of your home life and who you are has permeated into a work. Well, I've never thought about it from that perspective, but that does make a lot of sense. And that's definitely a valid argument. I'm sure there's way smarter people out there who have done the research on this. That's just my gut. Yeah, but you bring up a really good point because now I'm going back and having memories of those first Zoom calls. And the very first meeting I had was with a CFO. I found out later that he's in his son's bedroom because there's a model of a Millennium Falcon in the background. And automatically I'm like, we're having the conversation and I just met him and I said, I got to ask you, are you a Star Wars fan? And it took our relationship to another level. That fast. That fast. And then it's still happening. So talk about this culture shift. And I think you brought up a lot of good points, but Al and I were on a chemistry call for the podcast earlier this week and someone had emailed Debbie said, oh, we might have to cancel. The kids aren't back to school and Al and I were just, hey, that's fine. Bring the kids. And we met the kids and the little girl was stealing her glasses off the mom. But you're right that I think bringing us into and people into your home and seeing part of how you live has humanized people. And I've been a big fan of it. I've liked the relationships, the podcast itself. I mean, would we have met Jason? I'm not sure that we would have, but I'm sure glad we did because we're supporting each other and supporting each other's projects and what we're trying to do. So I think that's been a very big part of it. And I think I always look for silver linings. Like COVID was a very stressful time to live through for everybody, but there's definitely a lot of great things that came out of it. And one was, you know, having these deeper connections with people that you get to meet virtually. This is not the story I'll tell. I'll still tell that story maybe at the end, but for those who can't see the podcast, I have these big shelves behind me. There's all kinds of stuff on my shelves and it's Marvel helmets and it's movie stuff and it's race stuff. Big F1 fan. 
every single call I have, somebody points out something to your Millennium Falcon example. And a funny story was we were on a call last week, huge Canadian bank who's not a customer. And one of the guys on there starts saying, he starts like calling out things on my shelf. And I'm like, oh, you're a toy geek. There's like a bunch of people on this call. So for the first 10 minutes of the call, we're just talking about toys to where his boss, who's a VP says, do you two want it to just be left alone? And then he's like, well, I bet you don't have Andre the Giant action figure from the Princess Bride movie, right? And I turned around and grabbed it off the shelf and showed it to him. Like, how would that meeting have normally gone? We'd have walked in with suits and ties. We'd have sat down. Everyone would have been playing a part that they're not really who they are as a human. But that's also much more important from an employee engagement perspective. All the people in my company know when my kids come home because they walk right by my door. And it's that level of things. And it's that level of not just open communication, but honest communication, but also accurate communication. And listen, I am a C-level executive. Not everyone in my company gets to know all the things I know about the business. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is what you do communicate, make sure it's accurate, honest, and open. And you're communicating it from a place of, of sympathy, from empathy. Everyone has something they're going through, and so do you. Like Everyone will understand. And I think that's what this has brought, is just an understanding. And we've hired people who used to work at really big companies. One of them just had a baby, and he was on a call. He's like, oh, I have to be off camera because I have the baby. I'm like, no, you don't. And he's holding the baby with the entire company on this call, and the whole company embraced it. But at his old company, culturally speaking, like that comes across as a weakness. Like, why is your wife not watching the baby? And it's just that culture is going to be a big thing. So I'm going to tell my fun story, if that's okay. And maybe this is the drop the mic. <laughs> if you get it wrong, there's a historical lesson here. There was this ship in the 1600s, and it was called the Vasa, V-A-S-A. I think they pronounced it Wasa because it was Swedish. Sweden building a huge navy, going to do a really big war. And please look at pictures because you will have never seen a ship like this, like tons of bronze cannons. I mean, it, from a GDP perspective, it probably crushed their country. So it's gone. They're going to go win the war. The ship leaves, not the whole country, but the docks are full. They watch the ship. The ship makes it 1,300 meters out to sea and completely flips over and capsizes and kills tons of people on the ship. For hundreds of years, nobody knew what happened. So they go down, they recently, timeline, recover this ship, and they start trying to figure out what the hell happened. What they found was they had two different teams building the ship, right? Everything was perfect. The problem was one team who was working on one side of the ship was using a Swedish ruler, and the other team was using a ruler from a different country, from Amsterdam, the Swedish ruler foot is 12 inches and the Amsterdam one is 11 inches. So as they built the entire ship, it was an inch off all the way around. So as soon as it went out, it flipped and nobody talked about it for how many ever years it took them to build that ship. And all they had to have was one conversation day one to say, hey, what are you using? Well, I'm using this. What are you using? Oh, there's going to be a big problem. So to me, like that story sticks with me forever, whether you're communicating goals to somebody but just sitting down and understanding, are we talking the same language? Are we measuring the same things? Do I think about this the same way as you? And doing that as early on as possible. Like I do it in the interview because I don't want to have that conversation a year later. Was if you just did this, let's talk about it now. So that's my fun story for the day. That is a fun story. And I have actually toured the Vasa Museum. Wow. In Sweden. Yeah. If you're out for out in Stockholm, in and around. It is a fascinating museum and tour. Very busy. I don't recommend going in August when we went. Yeah, just fascinating to see and tour. 
It's interesting that you talk about that, though, about one side working over here. And they thought, they all thought collectively that they were working and doing the same thing. We're on the same page. And we've experienced that even in our business, not intentionally. Al and I had a conversation with our C-suite team. And I walked away with one interpretation and Al walked away with another. And a month later, we had to have a conversation and said, hey, remember when that, how come you did this? And one of us had to have the realization, it was me, that I didn't obviously didn't understand what the initial conversation was. So it's really important to be really clear and make sure the person beside you or on the other side of the desk has that same interpretation that you do. Because otherwise you're going to go out to, you know, what did we say? 1300 meters and, and yeah. flip over. So that's really important. So I think you illustrate that in a great way with that story. What I find is we're at this what I think is an awesome inflection point that has always been a problem in the workplace, right? People like I get up in front of a room, say everyone nods their heads and they leave. But with what we talked about earlier, kind of with the cultural shift, now people are willing to raise their hand and say, I don't know what that means, or I didn't understand you. They never would have done that before. I have it happen on meetings all the time. I'm the one raising my hand sometimes. Like, I'm not sure what that word means. I'm not sure what you meant, but now people have the trust safety to be able to say, I'm not quite sure what that means. And the fact that they can have that now and we're willing to be vulnerable to say, I don't know, combine that with AI that we were talking about, I believe we're going to be able to go exponentially faster because you, like whatever you were working on waited 30 days. In some companies, that could have been three years. And in this thing, they built a ship that took years and years and years. And the resources that went into it were crazy. Like pull that stuff forward as far as you can, but nobody's going to be willing to share if they don't have the security and safety and the openness and the honesty to be able to share that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think going back to that conversation, that's exactly what happened, right? I know what Robin is referring to, and it was kind of like, okay, um, there's something we just need to talk about here. But the point was, we felt comfortable enough that we could have that conversation, right? And one person wasn't going to get their nose out of joint. Can I circle back a little bit to where we started this conversation, which was AI, and that was interesting, and it was a great conversation. But I do want to swing back to that. Because I want to explore a little bit more your thoughts on AI and what it will mean going forward for your work or for the state of work out there. Like, What, what do you see happening in the future in terms of how AI is going to be used in the workplace and some of the implications of that? We did a really interesting thing because there is, a, even at our company, we're a tech company, there's plenty of people who are like, ah, that's not for me. Right? What's really behind that is fear right? Fear of the unknown, fear of being exposed. Like most every decision we make are like eight-year-old boys. We're terrified of getting in trouble or we're terrified of taking a risk, right? So what we did as a company, I'm gonna give you a long answer to your question now, sorry. We said, we shut our entire company down for one full day and we did a full day. It's not really a hackathon. We called it a hackathon with AI. So we broke the entire company up into teams and they all got their own instance of ChatGPT. And we said, we're not gonna tell you, but go solve a business problem but it has to be solved through ChatGPT. And one team tried to solve sales outreach. One team tried to solve contracting. One team tried to solve a tech thing, document management. We all came back, we all did our presentations. It accomplished two things. There were some amazing solutions in there that we put into place immediately. But the second thing was, I got many people outreach to me personally going, I never would have done this even if you told me to, but you forced us to do it in a day you know, surrounded by our peers. Now I'm gonna use it every day. 
So there's still, just like cloud computing, most everybody thinks everyone's stuff is in the cloud. It's still actually not a huge percentage of data that's in the cloud or even pictures in that. So the news is always about the freshest, newest. So still the majority of people are not using AI. So it's going to be this slow burn of how you get it into the workplace in a way that's, when I say safe, I mean safe from a compliance, safe from security, safe in general. And then what's going to happen is you're going to start seeing certain groups or certain people or certain companies pull away from others. And it's because they've become 20, 30, 40% more efficient than those around them or the companies around them. So when I see it from like a future state day-to-day, fast forward two or three years from now, it's learning and iterating so fast, but there's still some gaps. So the biggest gap is the latency of the data. It's still old data. So I can't type into ChatGPT today, hey, what were Verizon's financials from two months ago? It doesn't have that data because the processing power to process that data in real time is, is too much. When we get there, and we will get there very soon, Think of how people use Google today or choose your search engine. It's just going to be that, right? I'm going to go over to ChatGPT to do this or whatever AI I'm using. And I'm going to have a little widget in my Chrome that does this or that. Think about what it does from document management. Hey, I need to know where our sales contract was from this. If I'm going to go look for a contract and whether I use Salesforce or some other system, it's probably a 25 minute exercise. I got to do this, do this, do this, do this. I'll have it in two seconds. Pick any industry. It's just going to speed that up in a way by which they're going to be able to do it. I even think about it from a fast food perspective. Like McDonald's knows to the penny, not having somebody at a register, what it costs them. To the penny. So if you had to have a choice of having somebody at a register and having AI answer people at a drive-thru, it's going to get to a point where you're only going to be talking to AI at a drive-thru. And what you're going to hear from a fear mongering is that's taking somebody's job away. It's actually not. Whoever was going to be working that drive through one of two things is going to be true. They're going to either be working at the register or at a different job at McDonald's, or it may afford them to go find a job that they actually really want that they can be happy at, not that they wouldn't be happy at McDonald's. But it's going to afford the efficiency to give people other choices that they don't have today, right? Because McDonald's has to hire that person. They have to hire that person. There has to be somebody to take that job. We're at this place today where there's not enough people to take the jobs. So there's 33 million open jobs in the U.S. Many of those jobs are jobs people don't want. So why not automate some of those? Now, there has to be some government and corporation involvement to take those people who maybe were only qualified to do those jobs. Look at maybe their transferable soft skills, like their ability to innovate, execute and say, oh, you'd be really good as a BDR. You've never thought about being a BDR, but let's train you to be a BDR. I mean, that's what we do as a company at scale, not just for, you know, hourly workers. But once you know, have enough data and you can get some involvement either from big corporations, take those people for those unfilled jobs, train them up to have jobs that are going to be more impactful to them, their family, and and ultimately the economy. But it's just going to be a tool. Like nobody's going to think about this two years from now, right? Just like nobody thinks about Google, right? I'm going to go Google that. Like nobody thinks about it. No, that's a great point. And I'm going to bet... Again, you left a clue today about your exercise with AI. I'm going to bet when people hear that, they're going to say, that's a great idea and go out and implement it in their company because it sounds like it worked great for you. And I can see just getting people to dive into that and find out, hey, this isn't something to be afraid of. It's not. Guess what I'm adding to the agenda, Al, for our meeting? Yeah, exactly. Success leaves clues. (laughs) Every single time we talk to Jason, the clues are dropping. Jason, someone like yourself, and I'm asking this for myself, but I imagine other people would be interested in hearing the answer as well. We talked a lot about work today. 
How are you investing in your own personal growth? You know, there's a lot of, as you said, things on your bookshelf behind you for people who can't see this, but there's also a lot of books there. What do you do for yourself to invest in your personal growth? And maybe just take time away from work, even if it's related to work in terms of that growth. Yeah, I've gotten to where I have to be incredibly diligent in my calendar. So I have my job, but I also sit on boards. I do mentoring. I get mentored. So I have to carve out time every day. So the way that's worked because I have a job and a family is like, I get up really early. So I get up at 515 every day and I try to do two things at once. So you can use it for whatever you want. I use it to work out. But during that time, I also consume content. So I'm consuming an hour and a half of content every morning. And that content's different. It may be very specific to my industry. It may be a sci-fi novel, right? It could be a self-help book. It could be anything. It could be something I, I really want to learn that I don't know about. So for me, it's that drumbeat of content. And if you're consuming content with headphones in, you actually consume it very differently than if you read it, by the way. I read a lot of books, but I also get mentored, right? And when I say I get mentored, what most people think about getting mentored is you have an old person and a young person, right? The young person says to the old person, tell me what I need to know. That's certainly true sometimes. But I get mentored by people who just know more things than me. Some of them are way more junior than me. So set time aside, I know it's going to sound hard. Set time aside every week to talk to somebody you don't know who knows something you don't know. So for me, it could be literally a hobby, right? I know nothing about this thing. I'd love to know from you because you know it. It could be, hey, I've never done a job at this level. Tell me all the pitfalls that you had, right? And to me, it's just consuming as much content as you have, but also turn that around to be willing to share that content and also be a mentor for others. I love that answer. And we're very much aligned. I have a daily repeating task in my CRM that says perfect morning equals exercise and learning. And I put it there every day. And every once in a while, there's an early morning where I've missed my workout because I don't have time. I didn't make time getting up early enough. But I find that really sets the tone for the day. So I think that's a lot, of, a really good idea. And I love, because again, it relates to the title, Success Leaves Clues. If there's something that you're interested in, you want to get better at, you want to have more knowledge around, find someone who's doing that behavior or you know knows a lot about that topic and talk to them. And you're right, that takes effort. But if you're looking to become a better version of yourself, there's no better way than to get mentored. And I love that you said about paying it forward as well. If you're going to get mentored, make sure you're paying it forward and mentoring someone else. So I think that's great. I think it takes a lot of courage, especially in the States. We have built a culture that people do not want to admit weakness. And this goes back full circle to communication. Like there's, I'm good at plenty of things. I'm great at a few things. I'm bad at a whole bunch of things. And for me to reach out to somebody to say, hey, I'm not good at that. Will you help me get better? Even if it's incrementally. We've built a culture where that's a fearful thing and it's admitting weakness. I do believe in the world that we're living in now, and COVID has certainly sped this up by decades, that that veil has come down and the human part of this, people are much more willing to have that courage, but also give back to people who may need that help. Do you use a coach? Have you used a coach in the past or is your mentoring a substitute for that? Yeah, I've never used a coach. I've been very blessed to work for and work with incredibly smart people. I used to work with this guy who was a CEO. He was amazing CEO. It was very difficult to work for. But I learned so much about like if I'm ever going to be a CEO and how to run a I learned a lot from him. And we had a contentious relationship for years. 
And as soon as we stopped working with each other, that's just who he was as a leader. We've become great friends. And he's like this great mentor for me, right? But it was a different environment at work because he was a very old school person. So for me, I've never had the, hey, I'm going to go see this executive coach for you know a certain period of time. I certainly encourage people to go do that if that's what they want to do. My ADD does not allow me to go talk to the same person every week for a year. I need the different stimulant from different folks. All right. Well, any closing thoughts? I know we could talk for hours and hours and I'll ask you right here. I would hope you'd come back to the show. Always. And I do. I share the show because this is a stand-in. When we talk about being mentored and learning content, even if I pull one nugget every week from the show, and I do, I've known people who've been on your show who I've never heard them say that thing until they were on your show. And I listen to 10 of these shows a week. And it's like, if I can just learn one little extra thing, and sometimes it's a bombshell and sometimes it's not, but yeah, it's what you should be doing every day. If you're truly prioritizing growth and getting better and being a better human, like do it that way. I couldn't agree more. I'm always looking for those clues in, in many different spots, whether it's reading a business book or listening to a podcast or just having a conversation. So I think we're very much aligned there. Thank you so much for coming back and talking to us again. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if they have questions about yourself or what you're doing at Plum? Thank you. I'm very active on LinkedIn. If you want to look at Plum, which you should. As a human, there's a lot of value for you to get better at yourself, which is great. If you're a business, it's certainly something you need. So that's just Plum.io. If you're looking for me, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Just go to Jason Putnam on LinkedIn. I'm out there all the time. Can't miss it. My goal is to keep sharing this and keep getting a bigger audience for YouTube. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us again today. That does it for today's episode. I really enjoyed this conversation. As always, we hope you did too. If you have any questions for Al or myself, please feel free to give us a call or by joining the conversation on LinkedIn. And as we've seen here today, success leaves clues.